In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this, For we know that all creation groans in unison with birthing pains up until now. And there is more. It's not just creation. All of us are groaning together too. Though we have already tasted the first fruits of the Spirit, we are longing for the total redemption of our bodies that comes when our adoption as children of God is complete. For we have been saved in this hope and for this future. We are, this is the 11th sermon uh, and final sermon in a series on the faith that has been handed down to all of us once and for all. And we've been talking in this series about what we believe, what makes us distinct as Jesus followers. And very early in the series, I asked this question as kind of a guiding, one of several guiding questions for what I wanted us to do in this series. I asked, do you have a grasp on the ways the faith handed down once for all answers and deals with the deep ongoing questions and problems of your life, of the lives of people around you, and of the shared life of our communities, our nation, and our world? And I've tried to kind of keep that question in front of me each week as we visited crucial elements of the faith, the shared common faith that not only we have as Jesus followers at Community Church, but the church in Bryan College Station and the church around the world and the church throughout the centuries, the faith, the common faith that we've taken hold of. And I want to close the series with this question, the faith in the future, what's next? And Um, I want to do that because given all that we've said we believe about God and about our lives with him, I think it matters that we know that we have some sense of direction, that we have some sense of where the story is headed, what's next for us and for the whole of God's world and for the whole of creation. Uh, As I kind of thought about a good picture of what difference it can make, to know the outcome of something as you're living through it. Uh, I came to the, I I just couldn't, I tried, believe me when I say I tried to shake this illustration. Disclaimer number one. Disclaimer number two, I can't remember the last time I used a football illustration. So don't come to me and complain about lots of football illustrations. And disclaimer number three, the real preacher self-control act is that I'm talking about this two months after it happened and not the day after it happened. But two months ago, this moment happened. (laughs) One of the most glorious moments in Aggie football history, and it's another coach getting a Gatorade bath. Um, This was right before the end of regulation of the A&M-LSU game in November when uh, Kellen Mond, the A&M quarterback, with less than 30 seconds left, had thrown an interception. LSU was sure the game was over, that they had won, and so they gave their coach, a Gatorade bath. What actually happened, as most of you know, is uh, I almost grabbed my, my Bible to use as a football. Not, <laughs> not going to do that. We might find out just how sacrilegious uh, football illustrations are if I did that. Kellamont had dropped the ball on the ground and not even possessing the ball, but just putting his hand on top of the ball His knee had just barely touched the ground, which meant he was down before he threw an interception. If you haven't heard, there's audio floating around there, around out on the internet that tells us how we even found that out. And it's because someone whose job it was to operate the video board at Kyle Field and show replays noticed this and starts yelling into their audio feed on their headsets, play this again, his knee was on the ground. 
Officials didn't notice it. This came from the video operator at Caulfield who noticed it. They played the replay and then it went on. And as you probably know, the game went to seven overtimes. It was the most excruciating couple of hours in my long and miserable life as an Aggie football fan um, that ended in the most glorious. I mean, I went back and watched this last week from that last series in regulation through the seven overtimes. And I made a point when it was happening not to say, this is the craziest college football game in history because you always feel that way in the moment, right? This is the craziest thing that's ever happened in college football. The this, this series of events that had to happen to lead from one overtime, for the game to even go to overtime, one overtime to the next, all of that uh, is insane. When it was happening live, I was truly and sinfully full of anxiety and, and fear and trained fear from those decades of misery, <laughs> that surely there's no way this is gonna end well, no matter how many times something miraculous happened. When I went back and watched it last week, I know that it was real anxiety because I still felt it at times, knowing the outcome. There were times I could feel emotionally myself going, this is not good, there's no way, this is not gonna end well, even though I knew in my head how it ended, right? But if I had known when it happened live, how it was going to end, it would have been a lot more fun because I have a few friends, including Brittany, who went to LSU. And I would have had a text thread going, watch this. Your coach just got a Gatorade bath. By the way, if you go back and watch this, one of the best things about it, you want to see it again? One of the best things about it is how many times the announcers say Gatorade bath from this point through the seven overtimes, just to sort of remind you that that happened before the game was over. <clears throat> I say all of that, not to taunt you, Brittany, but because if we know how something's going to end, it shapes the way that we experience it. If I, when I knew how this game was going to end, it shaped the way that I experienced watching it. It didn't completely remove my anxiety because I'm human, and even knowing the outcome, we still have these moments of doubt, right? But knowing what was ahead, knowing how it would end, affected my joy, my anxiety, all of those things. And so I want us to talk about this question of the future of our faith. What's next? What's ahead for us? And I think it's easy for us to kind of shove these kinds of conversations off into the corner as that's just kind of an indulgent theological conversation about the end times. But I, I think about this more than ever. I'm old enough that my own personal experiences have piled up over the years, and there's enough pain and frustration, um, enough unanswered questions that I'm regularly realizing that my ability to see and hope in what's ahead is crucial to how I live today. And that's just looking at my personal issues. I mean, I look around the world, I look at the sheer volume of the brokenness and the division and the anger and the abuse and the unforgiveness and all of these things going on. Tomorrow's Martin Luther King Day. And I spent most of my life, if I'm honest, looking at a day like that thinking, that's a nice sort of sentimental way to remember a guy who, who got something done, who really solved a problem that we had. And now, I realize I don't have to look back decades, I just have to look back a couple of weeks to a controversy over a member of Congress asking, 
why are we offended by the idea of white nationalism and his own party stripping him of committees? This is someone with real power in the U.S. government saying these kinds of things. I only have to look back to Wednesday sitting at lunch with two friends of mine in town who are ministers who are also black and hearing them talk about their lives and their experiences right now in Bryan College Station, in the church in Bryan College Station. And it's easy for me to feel overwhelmed and despondent at how is it possible that this is still where we are? So I look at days like tomorrow a little differently. And my ability in, all, in the face of all of that to see and hope in what's ahead is crucial for me to endure without despairing, just to endure without despairing. And certainly, if I'm going to be able to see and believe and call forth true power and real hope in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of the groaning and all of the decay, I have to have some sense of what's coming. And I have to have some sense that there's something coming more than what I can do, what we can do by our own power, because we're trying. We've tried. And it matters, and I'll talk about that. But it's not, in and of itself, enough. enough. So, the hope, this question of what's ahead for us, begins with this simple promise from the scriptures, that Jesus will return. Jesus talks about returning. I'm not gonna, I could read you a, a number of scriptures where uh, Jesus and the scriptures point to his returning. Jesus tells us that there will be a day when he returns and all the nations will be seated at his feet. In Acts 1, as Jesus is ascending, there are two messengers from heaven who appear and say, just like you see him going, he's gonna come back. And then it's clear that that becomes a bedrock belief of the early church. And the writer of Hebrews says this, just as mortals are appointed to die once and then experience a judgment, so the anointed one, our liberating king, was offered once in death to bear the sins of many and will appear a second time, not to deal again with sin, but to rescue those who eagerly await his return. There is hope for us in that return. He is coming not to deal again with our sin, which he has dealt with, but to rescue all of those who are eagerly awaiting that moment when he returns. This is the gospel from the start, by the way, this truth that we need a rescue, that we need someone to come and save us. Jesus initiated that rescue with his birth and his life. He he completed that rescue with his death and his resurrection, and he will come consummate, to, to bring to completion for all of creation his intended rescue for those who are eagerly awaiting his rescue, his return, it says. So that's the first thing. Jesus is going to come back. He has not left us forever. Specifically, in his return, Jesus is going to deal with brokenness, evil, and even death itself. We started this series talking about um, not only the question that I put on the screen, but some essential human questions and problems, our thirst for spiritual life, our desire to see justice, our, our hunger for beauty to be what triumphs in the world. Um, and I, I, I put these statements on the screen several months ago. We deeply desire justice, but we're not wholly just. No matter how much I want it, I still recognize and know there is injustice in me. So I can't be trusted fully with that mission. 
and we can pursue justice and beauty, but even then, we find true justice and lasting beauty often incomplete, imperfect, elusive. We can't accomplish all of this on our own, even though it's clear God has put this hunger, this desire in us for these things, our sense that things are not right until we have real justice. And as long as there is ugliness eating away at the beauty that God has put in the world, things are not done. We've tried over and over again, and the things that we've tried, uh, the thing, th th this idea that continues to drive much of our thinking and much of our politics and much of our hope is this myth of human progress that if we're just kind enough, if we just work hard enough, if we just care enough, if we just care about the right things and really invest our time and our money and attention in the right things, then we're going to defeat all of these problems. And it's good for us to do all of those things. But we will not, on our own, by our own progress, ever solve all of these problems. We've been chasing this sort of utopian dream, and it's kind of a parody of, of what Jesus tells us he's going to accomplish himself, but we've been chasing it on our own for centuries. And it says that education and hard work and science and technology and money spent differently or spent correctly will set things right, that it will achieve these goals of progress and goodness. And there's a Christian version of this that tries to put into practice um, in society the promises of the Christian message by our own strength, by our own goodness, by our own kindness. And though a lot of good work has been done in this effort, it's not the whole picture. And the fatal flaw of both efforts to get to that level of progress outside of the faith and the fatal flaw even of trying to get to that level of progress from within the church, from within the faith, is that none of us can deal with the problem of evil on our own. I cannot heal all the brokenness in the world. We collectively cannot pool our energy and our kindness and get rid of the evil and the darkness and the brokenness in the world. Someone else has to do that. Political progress, we've tried it all. <laughs> We're still trying. And it has never been able to subdue the evils that plague society and more often has exacerbated them or participated in them. And our, our good Christian efforts can never do enough to fully eradicate poverty, poverty or to free every slave or to rescue every abused child. It's right that we do all of those things, but some kind of radical in intervention, some kind of new reality, a new creation is still missing. It's still necessary. And Paul addresses this in the passage from Romans that I read to start tonight. I wanna to put a broader passage. I know it's kind of scrunched up there. I wanted this whole passage on the screen for the moment. And Paul is talking about our current reality and, and what we're longing for. And he's connecting those longings to what God is going to do in Jesus. And he specifically says, starting there in verse 20, all of creation has collapsed into emptiness, not by its own choosing, but by God's. Still, he placed within it a deep and abiding hope that creation would one day be liberated from its slavery to corruption and experience the glorious freedom of the children of God. It's coming. 
We haven't been able to pull it off ourselves. But Paul says that thing in you that craves it will not go unfulfilled. God put that thing in you and he's going to complete it. If you move down into verse 23, he says, we are longing for the total redemption of our bodies that comes when our adoption as children of God is complete, for we have been saved in this hope and for this future. Jesus is going to come and he's going to deal with the longings. He's going to deal with the brokenness. He's going to deal with the evil in the world. And he's going to deal, we're told, even with death. And Paul says our hope for that is not in vain. We've been saved into that hope. Part of what Jesus did was put that light, that fire in you, put that hope in you. Even though it hasn't been fulfilled, you feel like you're in the second, third, fourth, fifth overtime, and is this thing ever going to end? Paul says, you've been saved for this hope and this future, and it won't be in vain. In 1 Corinthians, he writes, but the anointed one was raised from death's slumber and is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in death. For since, listen to what he says about Jesus, for since death entered this world by a man, it took another man to make the resurrection of the dead our new reality. Look at it this way. Through Adam, all of us die, but through the anointed one, all of us can live again. What he's about to say, we're about to get into what Jesus is going to do when he comes back, but what he's about to say about that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. All of reality changed when Jesus was raised from the dead. And I talked about this back in November, but it matters that we understand and believe that's a real thing that really happened because it changed everything. And, and our hope for the future of resurrection is rooted in the reality, the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. It set into motion the new reality that, that life could come from death. Yes, for Jesus, but also for us. And Paul says, ultimately, for the decaying creation. He continues writing this, but this is how it will happen. The anointed's awakening is the first fruits. First, Jesus is resurrected. It will be followed by the resurrection of all those who belong to him and his coming. And then the end will come after he has conquered his enemies and shut down every rule and authority vying for power. He will hand over the kingdom to God, the father of all that is. And he must reign as king until he has put all enemies under his feet. And then he says this wonderful thing, the last hostile power to be destroyed is death itself. Jesus will return. He will deal with brokenness and evil and even death. Paul says. And that changes everything. It takes the ultimate sting out of our ultimate fears. It unravels the, the power of sin and brokenness and despair, not only because uh, of our fear and our sort of despairing about our own deaths and the deaths of those we love, but it unravels the root of all of our fear and all of our despair by telling us that nothing and no one has the power to take our hope. Because this is what's coming at the end. Resurrection and the defeat of death is, is deeply threatening to all of the things that want to control us. And I mean that like literally tyrants, kings, rulers, people who want to control other people. Resurrection 
is people who believe in this resurrection, um, that's a threat to earthly powers because you can kill me, but you don't have the power to end me is essentially the answer to a lot of the evil and injustice in the world. But it also, um, the, the resurrection, the reality of resurrection affects the things that have power over you every single day, your fear and your anxiety, your anxiety and your hopelessness. Those things cripple us because they tell us this thing that is plaguing or oppressing me is going to define my life and then I'll die and that's it. I'll have never beaten it. I'll have never escaped it. But those things lose their power when we're able to live in the hope that all of the aching that all of the decaying and groaning is going to be met with a redemption that not only frees us from those pains, but thrusts us into a new creation, into a life that is eternal, that is no longer marked by death or the fear of death. And we will be free from not only the fear of future death, which affects all of us, but we will be free from the pain of past death. And for most of us, that's something that matters. I think it's hard for us to conceive of this truth when we're told that Jesus will come back and deal with death. It, it kind of blows our mind just because of what it says. But it also is, is coming up against the experiences that we have with death, the pain, the ongoing suffering and struggle and questions that we have around death. So I think it's, it's hard for us to conceive this. It's, it's harder still to live it. We've all been stung by death. Some of us recently, I just in 30 seconds wrote down who I could think of in the church who has in the last several years been impacted by death. Clearly losing Brock marked us all in a major, major way. The pouches have friends who lost a four-year-old little boy yesterday. Joe Peebles lost both of his parents. Buck lost his dad. Thomas lost his dad. The Reeves lost their husband and their dad. We have been marked and stung by the pain of death. And the point here is not that we should pretend that's not true, that it doesn't matter, that death doesn't matter, that it doesn't create a void, that it doesn't create an ache that tends to transcend our ability to describe it, much less get it out which we want to do sometimes, but we can't. And we can't pretend that it doesn't sting, right? It stings. The point isn't that those things aren't real. The point is that that's not the end of the story. Paul says, here's what's coming. It will all happen so fast in a blink, a mere flutter of the eye, the last trumpet will call and the dead will be raised from their graves with a body that does not, cannot decay. All of us will be changed. We'll step out of our mortal clothes and slide into immortal bodies, replacing everything that is subject to death with eternal life. And when we are all redressed with bodies that do not, cannot decay, when we put immortality over our mortal frames, then it will be as scripture says, Life everlasting has victoriously swallowed death. Hey, death, what happened to your big win? Hey, death, what happened to your sting? 
Sin came into this world and death sting followed. Then sin took aim at the law and gained power over those who follow the law. Thank God then for our Lord Jesus, the anointed, the liberating king who brought us victory over the grave. The sting of death will be removed. Not just the fear of death, but the sting of death will be removed when Jesus comes. So because all of that is true, because of all of that is in our future, this is the last thing I want to say today, that the church lives in active hope, not in passive waiting. Because of our future, we are activated by hope. We're not just waiting for Jesus to finally come and relieve us of all of this. That is, a, that is a version of the story that many of us absorbed somehow over the years, and it's not the version of the story that the scriptures give us. The very next thing after telling us that our biggest fear, our biggest pain, the sting of death will be removed when, the, when Jesus comes, the very next thing Paul writes is this, my dear brothers and sisters, stay firmly planted, be unshakable, do many good works in the name of God, and know that all your labor is not for nothing when it's for God. Though we are waiting for the culmination of all these things, we're waiting for Jesus to do things that we can't do, it's not true that we're without power or we're without mission now. God's work in Jesus is not only future tense, it's here and it's now and it's with us. We were saved into this hope right now and it drives us and it guides us in the way that we live and in the power that we have in the world. And we've discussed that at length in this series and at other times, but I want you to look at the present tense words that Paul uses here in Colossians chapter one. He says, he, Jesus, is the head of this body, the church. He is the beginning, the first of those to be reborn from the dead, so that in every aspect, at every view, in everything, he's first. So really rich with theology here about Jesus as king preeminent in everything. And he says, God was pleased that all of his fullness would forever dwell in the Son, who, as predetermined by God, listen, this is, this is past tense, this is present tense to Jesus' physical existence on the earth. He bled peace into the world by his death on the cross as God's means of reconciling to himself the whole creation, all things in heaven and all things on earth. This isn't only something that's coming. It is something that Jesus already set into motion. The power of his, his reconciling power, the power of his blood, the, the, the peace-achieving power of the blood that he shed is already a real thing in the world. The central point of our Christian hope, of the faith handed down to us once and for all, is what God did in and for Jesus Christ, particularly in his death and his resurrection, he will do for the whole world. And he has invited us to build for his kingdom, to live in anticipation of that day, to begin living now as though the kingdom of God is real. We live in active hope, not in passive waiting. So how? 
What does that mean? How do we do that? I think it starts um, with having, and I think Paul drives at this in, in multiple different ways in the New Testament, but very explicitly in Philippians 2, of having the same mind of Jesus. Paul urges us to do it this way. In other words, adopt the mindset of Jesus, the anointed, live with his attitude in your hearts. Remember, though he was in the form of God, he chose not to cling to equality with God. He poured himself out to fill a a vessel brand new, a servant in form, and a man indeed. And remember that this Jesus who chose not to cling to all of the power and authority that came with being God, but to serve as one of us, this same Jesus bled peace into the world by his death on the cross. And that is God's means of reconciling to himself the whole creation. So I think this is, this is how we set up the answer to the question, how do we live in active hope. We adopt this mindset. We live with this attitude in our hearts. We pour ourselves out. We become servants. We lead ourselves and we lead others to the one who bled peace into the world as God's means of reconciling to himself the whole creation. We exist. This is why we are alive. We exist to know Jesus and to lead others to knowing Jesus. We can't know him except as he is, bleeding peace in the world. We can't know him any other way. And we can't lead others to him except by following him in the way that he made God known, by pouring himself out, by being a reconciler. So here's your application for the week. Adopt the mindset of Jesus, bleeding peace into the world, knowing he is returning to deal with brokenness, evil, and death, to reconcile himself to the whole creation. And here are my two suggestions about how to do that. One, start at home. Start with your family. Start with your friends. Start with the people you work with. Start with the people uh, you're part of this community with. Just ask this question. If Jesus bled peace into the world on the cross... And if that's God's means of reconciling my home, my family, my roommates, my coworkers, the other members of this church to himself, and if I'm alive and I'm empowered by the Spirit to adopt this mindset and point others toward that Jesus, how do I live? Knowing that whatever it requires of me, whatever the cost for me in that, It's not in vain. Number one, because I am joining Jesus. Paul talks about this in a couple of different places. He says a really strange phrase that somehow we fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And he says what we saw on the screen earlier, that he wants to know Jesus. He wants to experience the power of his death so that he can experience the power of his resurrection. So when we live following Jesus into servanthood and sacrifice, we're joining him there. It's not in vain. We're not better than our master. We're following him there. And and it's not in vain because Jesus will come and reconcile it all. That's the promise. Second point that I want to suggest is start at home, but don't stay at home. Move toward brokenness. Move toward communities who lack peace. Not to fix or control 
but with the mindset of the one who bled peace. Look into our local community. It is not hard to find parts of our community that lack peace. Look toward those spaces. Look toward those people. Look toward the brokenness in the world and step toward it, not away from it. And instead of trying to, to assume you have all the answers and you can, if people will just do what you say, <laughs> their life will get better. Ask, what does it mean for me to adopt the mindset of Jesus here, who though he was God, instead of clinging to that authority and conquering by means of intelligence or persuasion or money or earthly power, poured himself out and became a servant, bled peace into the world, knowing that through serving and bleeding, the power of God is going to reconcile all things on heaven and earth. What does it look like for us to step toward the brokenness, toward the evil, toward even the death in the world, with this mindset and with this hope that we were saved into, that the future is secure, And that hope empowers us to actively live as though the kingdom of God is real and not just wait. Let's pray.